Good morning, everybody. It's, uh, it's really nice to be able to come and to worship with you this morning. It's always a joy and a privilege to be able to open up God's Word, but it is really nice uh, whenever you get to go and guests preach in a congregation that's part of our association, because it allows you just to get that sense of connection, a bit more understanding of who's here, and this really does feel like a large Baptist youth reunion at one level. Carrick, I, I knew Dave Ramsey did work as the director, but I didn't realize he did a matchmaking service and somehow managed to lure so many of you to the church. That's incredible. Um, but it is good uh, to be with you. One of the insights I can give you into visiting preachers, our big fear is that we end up preaching something poorly that was done well the week before. And so we scramble and we panic about what we're going to preach. I remember Emmanuel, whenever they were going through their vacancy, when I arrived, they told me, whatever you do, don't preach the lost son. Because they went through a phase where they heard it five weeks in a row during the vacancy. And of course, like every good congregation, politely, they sat there and nodded and drank it all in. And no doubt we're edified every time. But uh, it's a fear that pastors have that we're going to end up duplicating what was said last week. So that's not going to happen this week because we're going to a genealogy. So nobody, I'm sure, in the last couple of weeks has dared to take you to a genealogy. But we're going to read it, and then I'm going to explain why. And hopefully, by the end of it, well, we know God's Word always feeds us and always enriches us and encourages us. So let's open our Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. And we'll read the text, and then I'll pray before we come to study it. Genesis chapter 4, and we want to jump into the middle of the chapter at verse 17. Genesis 4, verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of that city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Meduel, and Meduel fathered Methushel, and Methushel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other Scylla. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Scylla also bore Tubal Cain. He was a forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Scylla, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know your people, 
And you know how much we hunger for the word and how much we need it. And we need it to know how to think, to have our minds renewed. We, we need it that our love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, that we would be able to approve what is right and so be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness until the day of Christ. And so we come to you at this time with our hands open, asking for help, asking for food. We realize that your word makes so clear that all of Scripture comes from you and is designed to be of use to the people. And we pray and ask, Lord, for that ability to see truth and to covet that the understanding of the word and that we would seek to see it, plant it deep in our hearts and to be lived out. We pray, Lord, that you would change us and that your Holy Spirit would minister, that the helper would be busy this morning to make clear the truth of Scripture so that we may know you better and serve you all the more earnestly. We pray as well for anybody who is with us who doesn't know Jesus yet as Lord and Savior. And we pray even the strange chapter of Scripture would help them to see the, the folly of living outside of Christ and the priority that he is in this life. So help us during this time, we pray, for we need your help. And it's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. One of the best commentaries on Genesis was written by a member of Great Victoria Street Baptist Church. And in that commentary, he says... Few literary forms can compete with the genealogical lists in terms of their tendency to induce sleep and the potential to bore the modern reader. Well, that bodes well for us this morning, doesn't it? That feeling is true so often when we come to these genealogies, we just kind of don't know what to do. When we're doing our normal Bible reading, we kind of want to read through the Bible, but we come to these lists and we get the idea there's a lot of people were born and gave birth to other people, and we kind of scan down it to appease our conscience and get to the end and move on to get to the, what we think of as the good stuff. And that feeling is even more intensified in Genesis chapter 4 because what happens before is so exciting. You have at the start of the chapter the hope of a mother who gives birth very literally for the first time in the world. You have the jealousy between two siblings. You have a record of premeditated murder. And then you have God step in and dole out divine punishment. And so it's a very dynamic chapter up to verse 16. And with all that has happened, then you come to this list at the end. And it seems like a really boring appendix to a very exciting story. But turn in your Bibles to a couple of well-known verses. First of all, to Romans chapter 15. And verse 4, Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, because I want us to adjust our perspective before we chew on the text a little bit. Romans chapter 15, verse 4 says, For whatever is written in former days, certainly that includes Genesis chapter 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 
So as we approach this section of Scripture, we should be approaching it with the expectation that there is encouragement and hope and instruction to be found here. If you turn over to the even better known verse, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Many of you, maybe who grew up in Sunday school, will have memorized this at some certain stages. All Scripture, every single part of it, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So as we approach Genesis chapter 4, we approach it knowing there is profit to be found here. There is instruction that we need. Rather than just seeing this as a little bit of extra additional information, this is God's truth and there's lots that we need to hear. This has been written for your encouragement, written for your guidance, written for your profit. And yet it can be hard. Certain parts of Scripture are more hard than others to get into. And so I want to do something a little bit different this morning. I want to spend the first little part of the sermon really asking questions of the text. So the the type of thing that you would do in your own personal Bible study reading, when you read a passage of Scripture, it's so good to ask questions of the text to make sure that we're thinking about it and taking time to understand what it's saying. And hopefully, as we do that, we'll see there's more here than we maybe at first think. And then we'll try and apply that truth to our thinking. So when you come across a genealogical roadblock in Scripture, those long lists and you don't know where to start, I want you to remember to beep, okay? Yes, I know, it's corny, but that's okay. It's easy to remember. When you come to a genealogical roadblock, you don't honk the horn, you beep. Okay, say it with me. Beep. Beep. That's good. Three people, well done. Uh, Very good. Now, what I mean by that is there are certain questions, and the beep acronym helps us to remember it. B, the first question we want to ask of these genealogical lists is where does the list begin? Okay, where does the list begin? Begin, it's a super helpful question to start to orientate ourselves to the text. So look at verse 17. Verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When we think about this particular genealogical list, this is a line that is tracing the descent of Cain. And we'll think more about that in a moment, but so often when we think of the genealogies of Scripture, we imagine they all run to, well, Jesus. The very first genealogy in Scripture, and actually most of them, about 60% of them in Scripture, don't trace the line to Jesus. And, And that very fact reminds us that God isn't just interested in the line of Jesus. Rather, our God is an all seeing, all knowing God. And He takes account and He takes notice of the good, the bad, and here's a very good example of the ugly. He takes account of all. He's interested. He he knows all about. This first genealogy, don't miss the point. It traces the ungodly line of Cain because God takes note of every single person and every single thing done. And the first genealogy of Scripture notes that. So where does the list begin? The second question in our beep 
is where does the list end? Very simple, isn't it? Where does the list end? Well, if you look carefully down the list, if you scan your eyes down, you see it traces through seven generations after Cain. It gives one name in each generation, but when it comes to the last one, we read about three sons and one daughter of Lamech. And yet, though the line goes all the way to generation seven, it then kind of skips back and it fixates on this man, Lamech, generation number six. All his children are identified and then it comes back and it takes note of his, well, his aggressive poem. And it uh, looks at his character and then afterwards and only after spending a little time thinking about Lamech, does it switch to another line, a new line. So, So you've got this line starting with Cain the murderer and then finishing with Lamech the murderer. This is not a rags-to-riches story. This is a bad-to-worse type of story. So, beep, where does it begin? Where does it end? The second E, is there any extra information in the text? Is there any extra information? So, these genealogies have a tendency to go, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, and you get the idea. On and on it goes. But every so often, there's a little detail sprinkled in there that breaks the routine, breaks the momentum, and that's significant. That's trying to communicate something to us. So so look down the text in front of you and notice if there's any extra information, because there's actually in this one quite a lot of little pieces of extra information, but they all have something that clicks them together. First bits in verse 17, you read about Cain, who builds the first city, names it after his son. And then in verse 19, you have Lamech, and he has the first polygamous marriage. The other wives of the other people in this line are not mentioned, but his are, because there's two of them. And the text wants us to take notice of that. There's something very different going on here. There's something happening for the first time here. And then we learn something about the success of his children. Verse 20, Jabal, he's the first nomadic herdsman. And he finds an industry that will really dominate the world for the next thousand years. You could think of him as the industrial revolutionist of his day. And then verse 21, you've Jubal. We're told about him. He's the inventor of the lyre and the pipe. He's the first musician, the creator of the arts. And then verse 22, you got this guy, Jubal Cain. And he's a metal worker. He's really the first to create tools and weapons. You could think of him as the technological leader of his day. And then verse 23 and 24, you have the first poem or song. You notice how the text is kind of indented. It's set out in a different way. That's because this is poetry as opposed to the rest of the text that is telling a story. This is a song. This is a poem. And it's the first one that comes after the fall. It may read a little bit more like a gangster rap than anything else, but the idea of it being a first is definitely there. And so you've got a lot of pieces of extra information, but you see there's a theme that links them all together. 
the first city, the first polygamous marriage, the first industrial advance, the first creation of the arts, the first technological jump, the first human poem after the fall. This is a big list of firsts for civilization. So beep. Where does the list begin? Cain the murderer. Where does it end? With Lamech the murderer. Is there any extra information? Well, you've got a whole list of the firsts, very significant firsts in civilization. And then P, beep. P, position. What is this list's position in the text? A better way to say that is context. What's the context? But that doesn't fit into my acronym, so I had to change it. So what is the position of the list in the text? In other words, what happens before and what happens after? Honestly, when you're studying the Bible, that's probably the most important question to ask to make sure that we're really understanding this passage. What's happened before? What's happened after? That really influences the verse or the verses that are right in front of us. So, so let's do it here. What happened before? Well, you've Cain, and he murders his brother Abel. Despite God warning him, sin is crouching at your door. He should have been his brother's keeper, but instead he shirks that responsibility And he shirks it through a lie. Did you see verse 10? What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. He lies to God and God sees right through the lie. And immediately indicates to Cain that he knows exactly what has taken place. And so God's justice is put on full display as he sends Cain away from uh, this land, this part of better blessing, he sends him further away from that blessing and presence of God. But God is good, and he shows grace at the same time, and he puts that protecting mark on Cain also. But look at how the narrative ends in verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. He, he moves east of Eden. In Genesis, that phrase appears quite a few times. And every time it appears, it really means to move further away from the presence and the special influence of God. It's, it's a really a way of moving away from him, away from that intimate relationship with him. And he goes to the land of Nod. That word Nod just means wilderness or wanderings. He goes to the place of wandering. And it's in that place, away from God, in a place of remoteness, in a place of his wandering, that Cain there begins his family. He begins his line. And that happens before. So what happens after? Well, after Cain's list, we read it, didn't we? We read, before you get to the big major one in chapter 5, a hint that there always was another line. Verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. 
To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. You have this snapshot of another line. That's the wording of the text. Another line. And it's going to be expanded much more in the next chapter. At one level, we don't need to know there was another line, but we do because the point is we're meant to compare these two. We're meant to see that while Cain's line went a certain direction, there was something else taking place. There was something else happening. The text says another offspring, literally another seed was born. And it brings back to mind all of those promises that were given in Genesis chapter 3, especially that promise spoken to the serpent that had deceived Eve and Adam. Genesis 3, 15 that through the seed of the woman, through the offspring of the woman, the serpent's head would be crushed. And now we see that while Cain may have gone his own direction, still that promise of God, that other line, that other offspring, that expectation remains. And this line's different. For verse 26, and notes another verse. Did you notice that? Verse 26 at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. For the first time, the first time people worship, and rather than run away from God and go east of Eden, they seek him. They seek him. So, so the position, well, what happens before? You've got this, this character, Cain, moving further and further away from God deliberately. And then after, we read of another line where they actually seek after God. So, so pull all the details. We've asked our questions of the text. Now we think about it. Where did the list begin with Cain, the murderer? Where did it end with Lamech, the murderer? All the extra information is, is a whole list of very significant firsts. And then the position of the text, well, before verse 16 says, Cain moved further away from God. And that's where he sets up his family. Whereas afterwards, there's another line, and they're marked by that one first, where they actually call to the Lord for help. So, so when we, we think of how all that information feeds into our understanding of Cain's genealogy, we can say very quickly that what we're seeing here is a record of how the wicked, those who reject God, how they prosper and, and how they flourish as they live without God. Now, we need to unpack that because that sounds terrible, doesn't it? So now we see the point of the text. Let's think about lessons we can learn from it. Let's chew that uh, on that a little bit more. So the first point I want us to take away this morning from the text, the first point I think God is teaching us through this text is that rejectors of God can be extremely successful in this life. Yes, you heard me right. Rejectors of God can be extremely successful in this life. Cain rejects God's rule here. He shows no remorse. That's a really telling thing about Genesis 4. He doesn't show any remorse after murdering his brother. In fact, verse 16, we, we, we need to think not of a crying, weeping, destroyed man, but a defiant man. 
who is marching east of Eden with his fist clenched and his head held up pridefully high. He he is not a God-made man in his own head. He is a self-made man, and he's going to determine his own destiny. And as he plows down that particular road, this text makes clear to us he flourished, and he prospered. God, God commanded him to wonder, and instead Cain did the opposite. He defiantly builds a city that becomes the model that the rest of humanity for, well, as long as we've had this world, would continue to follow. And then you've the other notorious player, Lamech, described here in the chapter, and he goes even further in his rebellion. God says, you know, the two shall become one flesh. And he doesn't care about that because this man's another self-made man. He's going to do his own thing. And he enters into a polygamist marriage. And he takes two wives to himself. And what's the result of that gross abandonment of God's design? Well, according to the text, massive cultural advances that the whole world benefited from. The development of the industry of farming, the, the beginnings of music and the arts, the, the creation of tools and weapons, the, the crafting of human poetry. This is advancement at, a, at an amazing pace. Now, when you think about that, does that surprise you? That there are people in this world who reject God. And they do so well. They prosper. They flourish. But I think this text in part is here to make clear to us that shouldn't surprise us. If there are individuals in this world that is all they care about, and they pour their God-given energies whether they, and talents, whether they realize they come from God or not, they use their talents in this world for the here and now, things will happen. Good things even can happen. Because if all you do is invest in the here and now, it should make a difference. If you, if you work hard, there will be a return. And so you see it all the time today. The rich businessman who's really out for himself and making his own name, he starts a massive business. It, it grows and it grows and it employs thousands And thousands of families all of a sudden are able to eat because of this atheistic businessman's pursuit of the business. You think of so many of the greatest scientists of our day. So many of them are outspokenly non-believing. The greatest artists, musicians, actors, arguably, are often the most aggressive against the Christian faith. And in the sense of Cain, they're seen to prosper here and now without God. And Cain's genealogy reminds us that's not weird. That shouldn't surprise us. We can't expect that. And actually, we should be able to celebrate the good and the contribution, the way it benefits society, and yet be able to reject their conclusion about God. Just because somebody excels in one area of life doesn't mean they have anything worth saying about another. 
Just because you excel in a particular small area of science doesn't mean that you have anything authoritative to say about the divine. Though there may be many men and women who contribute significantly to industry, to art, to technology, that doesn't mean they have anything valuable to say in the area or the realm of faith. The Bible makes clear that not many Christians will rise to those places of influence in society. There will always be some, by God's grace, but not many. And yet the tendency is that as Christians here and now, especially wanting what's best for our family, or at least what we perceive to be best for our family, we can feel so much pressure to follow the patterns of the inventive, the arty, the thinkers of our age. But Cain's line, I think, sits here in part to remind us to be cautious. Because though it is true that rejectors of God can be very successful in this life, the second point I want us to catch from the text this morning is that the successful can be very wicked in this life. The successful can be very wicked in this life. When you think about the chapter as a whole, or even the second half of the chapter as a whole, two things are happening all the time. Success and sin. Deliberate sin. Lamech is really picked out out of all of the descendants as the the case study. And you can picture this man uh, through his polygamist relationship and his son's then infantiveness. At the end of every day, he gets to eat steak from the farm. Well, well, he, unlike anybody else, gets to hear music, live music performed while he eats his steak. And he cuts it with his knife or his sword that the other son made for him. Everybody else is eating with their fingers, not this guy. He's eating with his spear. But the good life that he enjoyed, it came, well, very literally, because he rejected God's model of one man and one woman, and instead he took to himself two. Because here's a guy who does not what God wants, but what he wants to do. He's a carnal sinner. He gives no thought to God, no thought to anybody else but Lamech. What Lamech does what Lamech wants. And his family's inventiveness is all geared towards making his life comfortable and better. And it's seen in what happens next. He, he sees himself as a little bit of an artist and he goes out and comes home with a new song, a new poem. And it's all about his strength, maybe due to a tool, a sword that one of his sons made for him. But he uses that sword, he employs it to kill. And then he sings about it. <laughs> if, if Cain at least try to hide his sin and bury it. Lamech comes home and he sings about it. You see how defiant and blatant this guy is. He doesn't just do sin, he revels in it. He's figuratively taken the crown off God's head and set it on his own because here's a guy who's keen of his own world. He's alone to himself, a shaper of his own destiny. <laughs> I think as parents, especially in Northern Ireland, there's a weird pressure 
that somehow sits with us, especially in Christian circles, where we think that if we can just give our children enough culture, it'll keep them on the straight and narrow. And so they've got to get into the right school. And then they've got to be involved in at least some sport and maybe go and learn a musical instrument. And if we can just get them in that position, they'll be well-rounded. And somehow that will keep them, that will preserve them. What about Cain's genealogy? It reminds us, doesn't it, that culture will never save your child. I'll never keep them. In fact, actually, culture, when wrongly employed, can actually reinforce a pride that already exists in the heart. It can cement their independent, self-satisfied spirit. Now, now, don't get me wrong, culture, learning, those are graces that God has given to us to, to employ and to enjoy and to, to, to even use and utilize for our expression of affection and joy in God. But, but just like everything, too often humans take what God has given as good and we twist it. And we manipulate it into something that rather than glorify God, it glorifies us. We use it to glorify us. And we've got to be so careful because it's not just low culture or whatever it is is perceived to be low culture that does that. High culture or whatever is perceived to be that does exactly the same thing. Nazi Germany prided itself in being the, you know, the best high culture in the world at the time. And the leaders of that terrible movement would have massive parties in their big mansions where they would have classical music playing in the corner with the finest cuisine on the tables and the best pieces of art hanging on the wall and all the time their underlings were running to them and passing on bits of paper and receiving orders to go and to massacre many in the gas chambers. You think of America. America has done so much to contribute to the health of the world. The medical research and study to help us to be able to work out how to prolong and to preserve life, and we should be so thankful for that. And yet the same medical industry has really led the world in the destruction of life in the womb. A good life in this world is not the same as a right life in this world. And actually what we see as a pattern in society at large is it tends to be where human culture advances. We often at exactly the same time see a deterioration in, in human values and, and morals. So for those of you who are doing exams at the moment, thinking about university, maybe just finished a course at university and you're thinking about the career or maybe you're at the stage of life where you're switching, you're contemplating a career switch. Well, what do you want to achieve from what's coming next? What's your hope in that stage? What's your focus? What are you aspiring to? Success? Here and now? 
success in this life alone. This genealogy reminds us, you, you may very well get that. But without God, you'll also become a successful sinner. And sin has this ability to degenerate over time. The best and the brightest without God always become at the same time wicked and dark. Rejectors of God can be very successful in this life. The successful can be very wicked in this life. And the last thing I want you to see is the wicked can miss their greatest need in this life. The wicked can miss their greatest need in this life. (laughs) Because Cain's line finishes with that loud, aggressive rap about bloodshed, it's so loud and boastful that it's so easy to completely miss what comes after. And yet those last two verses of the chapter are so important. Look at them again. Verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. We see two things here in the close of the chapter. The first thing is that a serpent-crushing promise remains. It's a wonderful thing to read. Adam and Eve had another son. Another son. Eve takes him and she says, I have another offspring. And literally, I have another seed. And it reminds us, as we said before, about Genesis 3.15, that through the offspring, through the seed of the woman, would come one who would deal with sin, who would crush the serpent's head. And in chapter 4, verse 1, Eve, with that, that promise ringing in her ears, we're told that she had a son. And you can imagine her holding that little baby in her arms and looking at Cain and thinking, I wonder, is this him? I wonder, is this the promise? Is this the one that's going to, to, to crush the serpent's head? Is this the great deliverer? And is she nursed and cared for that little boy? She hoped for a few months at least. And then as that boy grew older, she saw that he himself was dead in his sin and transgression. And it climaxed with this one that she had hope in murdering his brother. Cain's life and line showed he was not the promised one. But now there is another, another seed. And and so that that sense of the the promise still remains. The, The promise can still come to be. Despite the real ugliness of Cain and Lamech's sin, the real ugliness of all human sin, that serpent crushing promise remains. And it's wonderful because we also see in that last verse that some cry to God for mercy. Because a promise remains, mercy is available. You see that last verse, we don't read about who did it, 
But we do read about this first for many unknown people. And it was eternally significant. Look at it. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. In Scripture, and especially in the Old Testament, the name of any individual so often spoke about their character, their nature. But here is one, the Lord, whose character is one of mercy, whose character is one of grace, whose character is faithful to save. And and it's upon this name that the people call, the, the people who called upon this name. They may not have been the great inventors of their day, the uh, great artists, the, the millionaires. But because they threw themselves upon the character of God, they gained something more than this life. They gained the eternal. They got the supreme thing that mattered most. But what about Cain's line? In contrast... Well, they were the movers and shakers of their generation. And then they ceased to be. The first city was built and forgotten. The first inventions were made and replaced. Art was carefully crafted and for a few seconds marveled at. And then was lost forever. As scripture would say, it was all like chaff that the wind blew away. And they were the most significant men and women in the world at the time. The authorities of their age. And today, well, we, apart from when a guy with a Balamoni accent stands up to preach to you in church, we never talk about them. We never talk about them. They're nobodies. Isn't it amazing how in the moment we can be so jealous of those who seem to be successful here and now, when in reality they will be forgotten after life ends? Turn in your Bible to Psalm 73. I love how honest the Psalms are. And, and here you have in Psalm 73 something of that kind of sense of heavy heartedness as the psalmist looks at the world around him at the time and compares his ill fortune to the success of so many blatant sinners. Look at verse 3, Psalm 73, verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Now, pause there a wee second. That's a good thing in the ancient world, a fat, sleek body. It showed that you never wanted for food. You, you always had abundance. So we don't want to be fat and sleek. But there, this was a, this was a sign of prosper. So, so the, this man is fat and sleek. Verse 5. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Verse 7. Their eyes swell out through their fatness. Again, that's a great thing. Their hearts overflow with follies. 
They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. These people that are so successful are so blatantly sinful and have no time or thought for God. And so look at verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Like, how do they get away with it? How do they get so much good whenever they're so obviously sinful in how they achieve it? And then verse 17 says, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Death is the ultimate determiner of significance. And Cain's line reminds us that you can change this whole world for a moment and make the greatest contributions to it, and then you die and you will be forgotten. Here are the greatest contributors of their day, but they miss their greatest need. And so their story of success ended at death. But for some unnamed others, death for them was just the beginning because they called upon the name of the Lord. Parents, if I was to go into the Sunday school and get the children without you being able to manipulate them on the way up and brought them up here and took a microphone and asked them, what does mum or dad most want for you? What are they most concerned about in your life right now? What would they say? They want me to do well in my school report. They want me to learn how to play the piano. They want me to be able to make some money. Matthew Henry said, Lamech was a father of shepherds, a father of musicians, but not a father of the faithful. Think about what comes across in your home and the things you encourage in your conversations, even your prayer life for your children. But what is your greatest hope for them? For, for those of you who are at that stage of looking at, uh, at what's next, doing exams, looking at what's next, new career, whatever it happens to be, what are you hoping to achieve? Money? Fame? You want to make a difference? That's not bad. None of those things are bad. I would love to have more money. That could be very helpful. That's not bad. But unless we get our first priority right first, and unless we first call upon the name of the Lord, this life is all we get. This life is all we get. I think all of us, we need to consider what is our greatest desire here and now? A Canaanite promotion of self that will end in death or a prayerful calling upon the name of the Lord. As Jesus said, Mark chapter 8, verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world 
and yet forfeit his soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the honesty of your word and how it explains to us not just the good, but how it explains to us the bad and the ugly that we see in this world, how we do see so many of those who live outside of your ways seemingly flourishing for a season and a time, and yet how your word so clearly answers and makes clear that there is no profit in gaining this world and yet losing our soul. We thank you that in a moment we get to come to the table and remember that though we may be very ordinary people, we have experienced the extraordinary by being able to put our trust in Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who through his broken body and his shed blood, we have hope that death is not the end, but the best is yet to be. Help us, Lord, to not get caught up in all of the distractions of the here and now, but to work hard now for his glory. Looking forward to hearing from him that refrain, well done, good and faithful servant. May we love him here and now and serve him faithfully. And then in a few moments, Lord, help us even just simply to remember him in the way he is appointed. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to ask the musicians to come forward and lead us in singing before we come to the table, Rock of Ages.